From the day that The Princess Diaries hit movie theaters in 2001, it seems like everyone wanted to be Mia Thermopolis. Or maybe everyone just wanted to be Anne Hathaway, who got her big break playing the lead role. Either way, The Princess Diaries was a pop culture game changer. But before there was a movie, there was a book, written by Meg Cabot and published in 2000, shortly before it hit the big screen. The book version of Mia is a slightly less polished version of Anne Hathaway. She's a little grouchier and a lot more difficult to impress. Perhaps most significantly, though, she's even less excited about the news that she's actually the princess of a small European country called Genovia. When Mia's dad, who is alive in the book version, an intimidating grandmother, a far cry from Julie Andrews' stern but kind character in the movie, comes to New York to share this royal bombshell with her, not even a professional makeover can convince Mia that being a princess will do anything but make her feel like more of an outsider than she already is. Fans of the movie will recognize other characters and plot lines in the book. Mia's artist mom, Helen, is dating her math teacher. Straight-talking best friend Lily Moskowitz runs a public access show on which she seeks to end local injustices, and Lily's older brother Michael lurks in the background. There's popular cheerleader Lana Weinberger and dreamy Josh Richter, the cool guy that Mia loves from afar, despite the fact that he's quite obviously a jerk and only interested in her when he finds out that she's a princess who can nab him some quick publicity. The Princess Diaries is packed with nostalgia, and there's so much to discuss. I was so happy to chat about all of it with my friend Haley Davis, who works in book publishing and proudly admits to following more Great Danes than people on Instagram. If you want to follow her yourself on Instagram, you can find her at heyc12. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Haley. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thank you so much for coming on to chat with me. Yeah, I'm so excited. So some important context for the listeners here. I know I already kind of introed Haley, but Haley and I spent about two years sharing a cubicle wall um, and we worked in book publishing. So this whole like book talk thing is definitely not new for us at all. I'm just pretending like our cubicle wall is in between us rather than the phone. Right. And I can hear you snacking and... um, (laughs) You spilling your water bottle. Every day. That's kind of a bad habit of mine. Yeah. Maybe I'll I'll spill my water bottle for you halfway through the recording and then you'll really feel comfortable. So today we're talking about The Princess Diaries, which was Haley's pick. And I was really excited that she chose it. Haley, I'd love if you could talk a little bit about your history with The Princess Diaries, why you chose it when I gave it to you as an option, and if you want to go book, you want to go movie, either way, because I think this book in particular, it's so closely tied to its movie adaptation. Yeah, I feel like I was just being true to myself, and I could have I chosen a more highly regarded book, but... I feel like you also have to be true to the 12-year-old that you were. And I, as a 12-year-old, I loved Mia. I loved her story. I loved her voice. I feel like it was one of the first books that I ever read that felt like a teenager. It felt like how I felt. Obviously, I, unfortunately, not that I know of. I'm not a princess. Um, You're not, there's still time. You could still get a call any day. <laughs> there's still time. But I felt like if I had chosen... A classic, it wouldn't have been. It wouldn't have been true to my twelve-year-old self. So you're just living and your best life with this pick. I had to be honest, and I also honestly was pretty interested in rereading it because I remembered the book t- took place in New York City, and that's where I live now. And so I wanted to see if I could remember what it felt like to read about the big city when I was twelve before I moved here. And I would say rereading it did not disappoint. Yes, I have to agree with you. So I think that any woman our age, it's weird. Do you find it weird to refer to yourself as a woman sometimes? I do. Yes. Okay, great. So I feel like anyone our age, I at least have such vivid memories of this book and this movie. So I agree with you that like my experience of reading it as a kid is like so fresh in my mind. So it was interesting to read it again. So when you say that the reading experience did not disappoint, 
tell me more about that. Was it the same experience, like escalated, or was it a completely opposite kind of reading experience? I think that in many ways it was similar to when I don't, I mean, I don't know exactly how old I was when I read that book. I think I was probably, I feel like I was 12 and 12 was the worst age to be a girl and to be me, I felt like. Mm. So reading it as an adult, like, you know, that, that was still me. So I still, I still felt like I could connect to those experiences, you know, those really awkward experiences that Mia goes through. Mm -hmm. And I had problems with it this time around. And I think I had problems with it then as well. But I still think that the voice is really authentic. And I still think that the voice was something that I hadn't come across before. You know, it was reading her diary. It was it was so intimate. And I was also a kid that kept a diary. So honestly, rereading it was a little bit, it was like embarrassing. Like it's like rereading your own journal from that time. Yeah. It's interesting because I um, I did a little research on the book before we talked, and the author Meg Cabot actually based a lot of the book on her own diary. So I guess she like went home to her parents' house and found her own journals from when she was in middle school and high school, and a lot of the sort of social stuff, like especially about boys and crushes, like that's right out of the pages of her diary. So I think that plays into why it's so relatable for readers. Yeah, absolutely, and I do think I think you made a good point right off where. It is hard. It was. It's hard to separate the book from the movie, and I feel like we could honestly have a whole episode like talking about why the movie went in this direction when the book went in that direction. So I thought that was also really interesting to think about because honestly, like I know probably most lines from the movie by heart, so it was also interesting to go back to like the source material, and I really couldn't remember, did I read the book first or see the movie? I have no idea, but I think they're so intertwined. I agree. And this, and as somebody who's still in the publishing world, you might find this interesting. So the book first published in October of 2000, and the movie came out basically immediately after that in August of 2001. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that kind of crazy? Yeah. They must've sold the rights like immediately. Exactly. So I think I was trying to remember the same, like I can't remember if I read the book first or watched the movie first. My inclination is that I saw the movie first. I agree. Cause we would have been really young. We were really young. I think I went and saw the movie that summer. I remember I went to see it with my grandparents <laughs> when I was visiting them. And then I have a feeling that I probably realized that it was a book and like we hightailed it out of the movie theater to Borders, RIP Borders, mm-hmm. like right yep. away and bought the book. So in that way, I, I think the movie and the book are just, it. you're right, it was very hard reading it to kind of separate it from the movie, especially because I've seen the movie so many times. Yeah, it's a classic. It is. Um, and I really wanted to watch it again as part of preparing <laughs> for this recording, but I figured I should focus on the book because like we said, it really is so different. But going back to what you were talking about with the voice, the voice is so distinct, like you were saying. I laughed out loud more times than I expected to. She's really funny. I mean, I have some other feelings about her that I think we'll get into, but I think as an adult, I appreciated how funny she was more than I did the first time I read this. Do you mean she Meg Cabot or she Mia Thermopolis? I guess both. I mean, I think the interesting thing is it's like, where does one end and the other begin when when it's like a journal? Did you feel that way a little bit? Like when it, it's so, it's such a first person perspective? Yeah, it's so it's so intimate that I feel like, I mean, her words are Mia's words. Yeah. Yeah, it's really it's really like one and the same. So I think like they're both hilarious. Mia, I think is funny. The way she sees the world is just silly in a lot of ways. I think like the melodrama of being 14 and like seeing the world as this like bigger than life place and your problems as bigger than life problems, some of which, you know, some of them are really hard. There are a lot of hard things you deal with in high school, but the things that she saw as like major problems sometimes just made me laugh. And her tone was really funny. I made some notes about things that made me laugh. I literally wrote LOL all over the pages just (laughs) because there were moments when I did. There are things that I think you get in the diary format that are just different from anything else. (laughs) One of my favorite things is when they say to Josh Richter at the end, this is sort of the end, but it's not a spoiler of any sort. Lily says, she's a vegetarian, you sociopath. Like that just made (laughs) me laugh so hard. Totally. I love Lily. Yeah, you do. So you're like your team, Lily. 
I don't know. I mean, the big the big rift that happens in the book. I'm totally team Mia. She she was so right about it. Yeah, I do find I've been talking to a few people about this book because obviously I've been reading it and thinking a lot about it. And Lily is kind of a divisive character among bigger groups of people. A lot of people don't like her, which I I don't really feel that much animosity toward her, but I guess I can understand why people would feel like she's like maybe too much to handle. I think she would be a really interesting friend to have and Mm -hmm. a really great friend to have in a lot of ways. I think she would, she would be like that type of friend that challenges you a lot, challenges your thinking, challenges everything you say. You know, I think some of the points that she makes about Mia are valid and she has the guts to say them to Mia's face, which I think is a good friend. But again, the fight... I don't know. I think I side with Mia there. I think so, too. I think of all of the things, of all the situations between the book and the movie, I feel like their friendship was pretty consistent between the book and the movie. Do you agree? I agree. And I also, I think that I picture, like, when I reread the book, I don't picture Mia as Anne Hathaway, but I picture Lily as that actress from the movie. And I picture Josh as that actor and it's funny well the actor who plays josh well, his name's eric van something some very long last name but he's like such a fixture of my childhood he was in like every disney channel yes. movie he was like the yes. surfer he was always the cool guy he probably he was brink yeah i think yeah yep. he probably like sells insurance now or something <laughs> so one of the things i struggled with with mia and her voice was that I think there were so many things that I liked about her and so many great qualities that I feel like the diary format really illuminated. And like you said, it was so intimate that it just was like a much different reading experience than anything that I've had in a long time. But I also, on this second reading, felt like there were things that I didn't like about her that I probably didn't pick up on as much when I was a kid. Did you feel that way or is that just me? No, I totally felt like felt like that. I felt like there were definitely some aspects that were <laughs> today we would say was not PC. Mm. Her sort of uh, lazy activism, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though you can, you can appreciate that in, in some ways. But I think that's the other thing about a journal is that it presents all of your negative sides too. Like that's where you go to present your thoughts Mm -hmm. that you wouldn't present to the world. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting gender dynamics Mm -hmm. in the book. The book is so obviously so fundamentally different from the movie because her dad is alive in the book and her dad is a really interesting character in the book. And he doesn't like, even though they were never married and haven't been together in 16 years he doesn't like her mom going on dates and you know it just but he possibly he pays for all of their bills there's just like lots of interesting stuff that I definitely didn't pick up on the first reading or didn't remember because I remember the movie right and him being gone and I think in the movie when he's gone she has this like idealized version of him and and we as the audience can't help but imagine him as this like gallant prince really which is Mm -hmm. we find out who he was but I agree with you I think the dad being part of the narrative changes so many of the dynamics I did read an interesting fact online in an article from Hello Giggles so the reason ultimately that the dad was written out of the movie was because Julie Andrews was cast to be the grandmother because Ah. yeah because they decided that julie andrews was so big they didn't expect to have somebody with such a big name coming in to the movie and they were like well we we want julie andrews to have more of the big lines and to kind of like take on more of that fatherly parental role so that's Mm -hmm. why the dad that was why they made that decision which i thought was interesting that's so funny because the I mean, I would assume Julie Andrews in person, but Julie Andrews in the movie is so much kinder than Mia's dad and Mia's grandmare. Like that character is so, it's so not from the book at all. Like her dad, Mia's dad isn't mean, but he, you know, he pretty much has a no frills attitude, like pretty down to business kind of guy. And obviously like there's lots to talk about here, but her grandmother in the book is horrifying. Yeah. Horrifying terror. Like the stuff of nightmares. I don't even know Um, where to begin with like the eyeliner. Like how does that, how does the tattooed eyeliner even work? I remember two things from this book that I will carry with me forever. One of those things is that you can have eyeliner tattooed to your eyes and 
we'll come to the second one later. <laughs> You'll remember it. I'm sure you will. <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, the sort of tone of the grandmother is very different in the book. She's really scary. And Mia hates her. You know, I think in the movie, there's a lot more like redeeming moments for her. And in the book, like, I kept waiting for it. And you got a little of it at the end when the grandmother was helping her get ready to go to the dance and when they were having some, like, boy talk. Yeah. But there was, I mean, the the book ends with the grandmother kind of having, like, an altercation with a blind man down the street, which, (laughs) I mean. Was also weird. That was a really, can we talk about that ending for a second? That was so weird. Yeah. Like, so unexpected. I understand that we, you know, we missed a lot of the royal stuff in the book because obviously it's it's set up over several books in a series. But the ending of this book w- was disappointing. And I do wish that there had been a little bit more of a moment of redemption with the family. And with Michael. Yeah. That's his name in the book too, right? Yeah, Michael Moskowitz, Lily's okay. brother. So... In the end, you know, there's kind of this, I would say it's a little bit of like a romantic cliffhanger where we find out that Michael liked Mia Mm -hmm. and there seems to maybe be a possibility for there to be a little spark, but you don't really find out that much about it. And I think I read the second book at least, I don't know that I read the rest, but I think that there's more about that in the subsequent books. And obviously in the movie, they end up together and have this like very romantic moment. I love that moment in the movie. I remembered my second thing, which is that Mia always describes her hair as looking like a yield sign. To this day, I don't know what that means. And to be fair, I don't drive. I live in New York City. But what does that mean? I think that's true. Like, what is what shape is that? I don't even know. know. Is that like a trapezoid? But I've always remembered that sentence and I've never known what it meant. Actually, so this is another funny thing. And forgive me if I'm interrupting a question, but I read a line in the Princess Diaries that I had made my I had made my own in in like my life history. I thought that I came up with this line. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. Please <laughs> lay it on me. But I actually what happened obviously was that I read it when I was eleven and then started saying it out loud. Oh, but oh, I can't the line, wait. And it's it's like kind of sad, but so Mia says you know, her parents were never married Mm. and she suspects it's because her dad never asked. I, my parents were never married. I have always said that I suspect it's because my dad never asked. I ripped that off. (laughs) Isn't that amazing how that like buried itself into your brain though? It's very disturbing. (laughs) You and Mia Thermopolis, same page. I know. I, to that point though, there was a line that I, that I kind of got stuck in my head reading it this time that I wonder if you have thoughts on. So Haley and I, both of our parents are not together, which is something that Haley and I connect on. Um, And I thought it was really interesting and kind of refreshing that there was a line in this book where Mia basically was like, I, you know, I'm sort of relieved that they don't live together because I think it's better that they don't. And Mia has a lot of problems and she complains about a lot of things, but I thought that it was really refreshing for a kid in a book or in really any form of pop culture to not be super melodramatic about her parents not being together. Like that is a voice that I personally haven't heard before. And the fact that she had all of these other problems, but you know, her parents not being together wasn't one of them. I thought that was really cool. I totally agree. And that was actually another, another thing I read where I was like, I've, I've also always said that I've always said that I've, I'm happy my parents aren't together. It's, it's a, a belief that I have, but right. it reading that I was like, <laughs> did I just rip off Mia twice? <laughs> Do you think you secretly wanted to be her a little bit? Maybe. Well, you wanted to be a princess uh, maybe, and you wanted to live in a city. Of course I did. And I think I liked the actor that played Michael in, in the movie. I wanted to look like Anne Hathaway, even though the movie took place in San Francisco. Like I liked you know, the hills and her car and the boardwalk and obviously having Julie Andrews as a grandmother. Even her mom was really, in the book too, her mom is really cool, like a cool artist. Like, okay, they live in a loft in the West Village. That's fine. (laughs) Right. We only wish, as I am recording this in my tiny, like overheating home office that also contains (laughs) my closet and my yoga mat and everything else I own. I would love to live in the artist loft in the West Village too. Did you ever feel like you thought the book, like there were some parts of the book that 
felt like they should be in a, like the book should be set in a different decade. Like, Hmm. so in in the 2000s, was it possible to still live in a loft in the West Village? Because that just seems crazy to me now. I mean, we, I work near there and we see Paul Rudd like every day. So is that possible? I don't know. I think of like Friends because that was not long after the Friends era. True. But Friends wasn't realistic either. So maybe, you know, the author just knew like, oh, people will buy this because they watch Friends. Yeah. The other thing that really started to get to me, and I think this was early on in the book, but Mia repeatedly calls people, says that men are like our Baldwins and that her mom is a Betty. Those two lines are directly from the movie Clueless. So that really got to me because A, I, I to this day don't find that to be a rel- either of those to be relatable references. And B, I was just like, wait, did you, did you take that from Clueless or did Clueless take that from you? Right. Well, ironically now, whenever we think of Alec Baldwin, we think of Donald Trump on SNL. Right. So I think like I agree with you. I never remember a time when I was like, ooh, the Baldwins. I agree. I think, and I've, I like I said, there were a lot of moments that I didn't like Mia and I felt like I didn't get her. And then I was reading um, an essay that somebody wrote about, the headline was something like, you know, this is a controversial topic, but The Princess Diaries isn't as good as you thought it was or something. And it was about how the movie actually was a big letdown compared to the book because the writer had gone back and read the book and really felt like a lot had actually been lost in the movie, which I think is interesting because if anything, and I kind of hate to admit this as a book first person, I prefer the movie, but she was basically saying that she felt like the movie glossed over a lot of Mia's quirks. And she thinks that a lot of that has to do with the fact that they relocated it from, that they relocated it from New York to San Francisco and that the movie kind of glosses over a lot of her politics and a lot of her insecurities. And I thought it was really interesting being somebody that's now lived in New York for six years. When I place Mia as a kid who's grown up in New York, a lot of her attitudes about things and a lot of her outlook and kind of her mood makes more sense. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's funny because the book is, it's such a New York book. I mean, there are so, like, she goes to the Central Park Zoo to see the penguins. You know, she goes to, I mean, she goes to private school because, obviously, she has to. Like, they go to private school. They have the matching outfits. Like, you know, a a lot of the book is the subway in Washington Square Park and where are they going to film Lily's show and doormen. And, you know, it's it's a very New York book. So I think either way, when you relocate that, you're going to lose a little bit and you're going to lose a little bit of who Mia is. Yeah. Do you think that on the whole, and this is always, I think, a fascinating conversation about any book, and I think we'll get into it, but is Mia likable and does it matter? I think that she is likable and I do think it matters. I mean, I think likable is an interesting term. I think she is redeemable. Mm, okay. I think that her flaws are redeemable. Again, she's 16 years old, and this has all been thrown at her, and she's just trying to figure it out. And, you know, she has she has a good head on her, on her shoulder. She has good morals. Like, she knows what's right and what's wrong. And I think that that's more than I can say for when I was 16. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, she really is it's important to her that she pleases her parents it's important to her that she makes good on the relationships that have gone bad and it's interesting because it seems like every time she's kind of treading into territory that as a reader we know is unsafe or not particularly ethical or she's saying nasty things she does always kind of backpedal a little bit so I think you're right that she has a good head on her shoulders I am kind of 50 50 on the likable issue and I think you're right I think that's a tricky term and I probably over the course of this podcast need to come up with some other words because I'm always interested in talking about characters and how a reader is going to perceive them. But I, I'm on the fence about me. I think I like that she's redeemed. Like you said, I think it's inspiring for kids to see that there are teenagers who are complicated and who are confused and who have a lot of issues, but are going to be able to pull out of it. But I did feel like there are a lot of parts of the book where she was a little hateful and I struggled with that. Yeah, I agree. Um, I agree. There were definitely times where she 
made, you know, snotty comments, snide comments. She wasn't nice to people, even though she hated when people weren't nice to her. Um, I think if you, and what's interesting is if you ask that question about the movie Mia, I think everyone would say, yes, she is totally likable. But how much of that is is the appearance of Anne Hathaway, which is also something I don't I don't love about the movie. You know, I think the book is way more honest about Mia's flaws and quirks. And, you know, in the movie, she has crazy hair and she has all these flaws. And then she gets a makeover and she's like a different person. And she's a, you know, a better person. And I don't love that. Yeah. I was going to say, do you think the book is made better because Mia doesn't like lose her shit because she's so happy about the makeover. Do you think it's a better experience for readers because they're seeing that she's not suddenly like happier because she's had her makeover? I mean, she kind of has a temper tantrum after her makeover in the book. Yeah. I, yeah, I like that. And I think that it's different when you think about the book as one of a series, but you know, I think she has, I think you finish the book knowing she has a lot more growing to do. And I like that. And I think that that is true and you know and is also good for kids to read and know that okay she's trying to better herself Mm -hmm. I we were talking a little bit about appearances and as I was talking to another friend about this book recently the phrase that they used about this book as something that they really remembered from reading it as a kid which I thought was interesting because it's not a phrase that I hear often or that I use often they immediately just said oh there's tons of appearance politics in that book which and then of course I started to pay a lot of attention as I was yeah. reading and I started to like highlight almost every page, you know, points where I felt like appearance politics were coming into play and from all directions, good and bad. Obviously this is I think a literary device to a point and I'm sure you can speak to that more than me. You are an English and writing major and you know, you have some really good reader chops that I probably don't have, but I think that there's to some extent, you know, writers do kind of have to use visual cues to help readers figure out the world that they're supposed to be inhabiting. Um, But I felt like this book maybe put too fine of a point on some of the appearance stuff, especially in a book that's meant to model acceptance for kids. Like that was one thing that I wasn't crazy about tonally. I wish that there had been less. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's one of the things like in the beginning I said, there are some really not PC things. There's some really interesting comments made about the cultural diversity dance at Mm -hmm. the end, just some stuff that really does give you a pause and doesn't really scream acceptance. Yeah. I mean, she even refers to Lily as looking at like a pug. Yeah. That's not great. That's not great. That's also always stuck with me and doesn't really seem like a way that you would describe your best friend. Right. And I think that's how, that's what upset me about it. I think it's one thing, obviously any story that takes place in the world of high school where there's all of these politics and complicated hierarchies, there's going to be pretty girls. There's going to be girls with great bodies. There's going to be girls who have great outfits and hot guys and nerdy guys. But I, I, I think it took something away from all of that when Mia was just assigning everybody identities based on how they looked. I I think if that disappeared, the book might be made better for it. Why were they so mean to Boris? I I did not understand that. Why would they lock him in the closet? That was so weird. It was so weird. So if you're listening and you haven't read the book in a while, Boris (laughs) is in their gifted and talented class. I think there's a Boris in the movie, but he's not as nerdy. Yeah, I think so, too. And they're in choir. They're in choir. Yeah, in the book, Boris is a violinist, and he's in their gifted and talented class, and they lock him in the closet every day to practice, but he's like a prodigy. He's very talented, and Mia makes fun of him um, and kind of teases Lily about the fact that she has a crush on him. And she she can't say a word about him without saying that he tucks in his sweater. Right, and she says a lot (laughs) of things, and I thought it was interesting because of her politics— she made a lot of comments about, like, in America, we don't tuck in our sweaters into our pants, which I loved her politics. I actually wrote down somewhere that, you know, these kids were, like, the OG liberal teens because they were well ahead of their time in so many ways. She talks about Greenpeace and they're vegetarians and, you know, they're big on feminism and they have a lot of cool ideas. Lily has a public access show where she's trying to, you know, right all these wrongs and it's really cool. But then Mia says stuff like that. And I'm like, come on. Like, come on. 
her Lily Stalker is a huge flat point in the book for me. Oh, that has I felt like that has always freaked me out. So he gets sent to an institute, and I just feel like the way that he is, the way that Lily and Mia talk about him is weird. Like they tease, they tease him. And yes, I mean maybe he, you know, maybe he is a, a threat, but it, it doesn't seem like a normal way or what I would call today a normal way to handle someone that seems to have some real issues and some real mental health issues. Like they tease him, like Lily shows her feet all the time on camera. And it, I just found that to be very bizarre. Yeah. I think as, as many redeeming qualities as they had in terms of being real and funny and like seeing the world in a way that was relatable to us having been teenagers in America, I think there were things that that were not necessary. I mean, I love that they had flaws because that makes them more real. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that all of the flaws needed to be quite so mean. Yeah, I think that that it's a hard it's a hard balance because when I finished rereading it and I was thinking about you know these things that we've been talking about and not feeling great about them, but then I was thinking about myself when I was sixteen and you know i'm sure that i was mean to someone and bullied someone and did not you know was not always a great person and my thoughts were not great you know i i mean i had journals i know my those thoughts were not great they were not very nice and so i struggled between that but also knowing that you know feeling bad that kids are going to read this and start thinking these things you know so i think there is a level where you can look back on the book and appreciate it, but you kind of need, you need those extra, you need to be a little older and have perspective on it. So I do worry about kids reading that and either encouraging their thoughts or starting to think like that. Yeah, I think especially when a protagonist has thoughts like that, and especially when a protagonist who's, who has been sort of socially victimized, when the response becomes to like socially victimize other people, Mm-hmm. I think that just is problematic. And I wonder if that's changing. I mean, I, I think that was pretty common in books, definitely when we were growing up and before. Some of the other books I've been reading for the show, I've noticed the same pattern where it's like, you know, it's okay to be mean to other people as long as you're defined as the nice one mm-hmm. and readers are supposed to be on your side. And I wonder if moving forward, you know, given all of the anti-bullying movements that have come to light recently, I wonder if that's changing, if the ties are shifting there. I hope so. I think that would be great. I think so too. And I think, you know, something like different, a little bit of a different age range, but something like Wonder, Mm. you know, there are pure, good, moral kids in that book. And it's such an anti-bullying message. And there are also characters that redeem themselves. So I think that maybe it's good to have a mix. Yeah, I'm putting in a hard plug for Wonder here. If you haven't read Wonder, read Wonder. Like It's life-changing. Read it yesterday. It's so good. Speaking of life-changing, I want to talk a little bit about this moment of Mia finding out that she is a princess because it is life-changing. And what, what I found interesting on the reread was that in the context of everything else going on in the book, like the fact that she's actually a princess it's not that, it doesn't figure that heavily into the plot. It's sort of moving a lot of other things along. It's kind of bringing into a sharper focus, like a lot of the social issues she's having and a lot of the frustration she's having at home. But there's not a lot of like straightforward princess content in this book. Yeah, that's so true because that's another huge difference with the movie. I mean, you know, the movie, we see her at princess lessons and we see her at state dinners, but at least in this, you know, knowing it's the first book in a series, we don't we don't see her. We hear about that. You know, we mm-hmm. hear about how she hated going to the plaza with her grandma and, you know, having to sit up straight and all of that or learn how, which fork to use. Like, you know, I wish they had had a diagram because I could certainly learn from that. Yeah. Um, me too. But yeah, there's not there's really not a lot about what what is this going to entail besides, you know, she laments that she'll have to spend her summers there. Right. Yeah, I agree. And another interesting fun fact that I discovered today when I was researching is that the whole princess piece when Meg Cabot was developing the book was an afterthought, which is hilarious when you think that the title of it (laughs) is The Princess Diaries. The whole inspiration for the book was the fact that after Meg's father died, her mom started dating her math teacher and they ultimately got married. And so 
Meg Cabot wanted to write a book about that experience, and then she always had like had a thing for princesses. So she was like, "Oh, I'll just throw that in as like a fun <laughs> plot device." And we got the Princess Diaries, which I think is so funny because obviously, what most people think about when they think about this book is the princess element. But I think that's so smart of her because girls, kids hear about this book and they want to pick it up because it's that fantasy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the reason why, yes, the voice and Mia and the characters and the the diary aspect, but there are a lot of books like that. Why you pick up this book is because it's it's a little bit more escapism. Yeah. What is your take on Mia's reaction to this news and like the way that she handles it over the course of the book, which is not great. I mean, she's not excited about it. It's kind of a life ruiner. Um, What's your take on that? Do you think it's complicated in a refreshing way? Do you think it's unbelievable? Um, How do you kind of look at that? I guess I feel like, I feel like the being very embarrassed by it is very relatable, you know, and I think that that's something that adults don't always like wouldn't always understand that reaction but I do you know being like well I don't want to stand out any more than I already do I just want to fit in um I don't think she ever really gets what could be the good part about it she's also very flippant about money you know like with the private jets like the um estate in France like rereading it this time I'm like rolling my eyes like okay and you you thought this was normal Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think parts of it were believable. I would feel embarrassed too. I didn't like to stand out. I didn't want anyone to know anything about me, really. I think that she definitely does. She does try to please other people. You know, she she wants to appear like she's okay. You know, she wants to be strong for her mom and her dad or whatever. But I don't think she ever really gets at Like, what is it going to mean to lead a country? Yeah, and I think... Part of that is that nobody tells her. And I don't remember, again, getting into the other books. Maybe there's more of that. And she definitely gets more of it in the movie, I would say. Yeah. There's there's more princess lessons and just more of a focus on kind of like the grandmother's pride in her country, which I don't know that you get as much. In the book, it's so much more about the grandmother wanting publicity for Genovia. Yeah, Um, it's status. It's all status. And I think to that point, did you see coming the fact that the grandmother was the one who was leaking Mia's whereabouts to the press. So again, for those of you who haven't read it recently or watched the movie, there are a few instances in the book where the grandmother kind of lets the press know where Mia is so that they can be there to take photos. Did you see that coming? I I think it's I think it's true to character for the book grandmother. I do think it's a risky move yeah. knowing your granddaughter is very unpredictable and unpolished and has crazy hair and big feet and is already stands out. She's very tall, you know, mm-hmm. um, that would have shocked me in the movie. You know, in the movie, when this happens, I did, I never thought the grandmother tipped them off. Yeah. It was surprising to even think about that. I'm, I need to rewatch this movie because I still don't think that the grandmother tips them off. I think it's like a, I think it's Josh and Lana. Yeah, well, because Josh tips off the press in the book as well. There's a different incident where he tips them right. off in sort of the climactic moment of the book, um, and then that's kind of where oh, Mia yes. gets her. You know, the first incident, the first incident in the, in the book, the grandmother is responsible for it, and then the really, really embarrassing, the yeah, the really embarrassing moment is is uh, Josh's fault at the dance. Now, in the movie, I just remembered, the person that really reveals that Mia is a princess is the hairdresser, Paulo. Yes, love Paulo <laughs> until he did that. And I kind of, when I was reading the book again, I was like waiting for it to be the bodyguard or the hairdresser, and then obviously I was wrong. And we find out that it's Josh, which is not mm-hmm. at all surprising. A lot of the boy dynamics I really enjoyed. I think... Meg Cabot was really, really good about writing the boy dynamics. And now that we know so much of the content comes straight from her diaries, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. But I had a Josh Richter in high school, and I had a Josh Richter moment in high school. Not that, like, there was press involved or anything. But I had, like, a Josh Richter equivalent who I just thought was so hot and so cool. 
And, you know, we had like sort of a moment at the prom where he noticed me and I really felt it felt like the world was like falling apart around me. And then five seconds later, he was just gone, you know, and I Mm -hmm. think so I related a lot to Mia's feelings about wanting to believe that he was this sensitive guy and like explaining away his flaws because she truly believes that he was a nice person. I really understood that. And one of my favorite scenes of the book <laughs> was the slow dance scene. Did you remember mm-hmm. this? I, I It was like one of the best scenes I've ever re- read, I think. I didn't remember it until I reread it. It's, it's so good. Like, I'm, I highlighted it almost the whole page. She says... I was dancing my first dance with a boy who wasn't my dad, and it was a slow one. Slow dancing is strange. It isn't even dancing, really. It's more like standing there with your arms around the other person, moving from one foot to the other in time to the music, which is, like, so true, and I still feel that way. It's so true, and I remember, you know, I remember thinking about going to my first dance and being like, I don't know how to do, like, I don't know what that means. I don't know how to do this. Like, does everyone else know how to slow dance? Right. It's, <laughs> it felt like such no. a different, nobody does. It's not that fun. It's not, I mean, it's still, it felt like at my wedding, I still felt like I was like kind of just swaying back and forth. Like it's, <laughs> it's not as fun as fast dancing, but when you're Mia's age, it's like the biggest thing in the world is to get asked to slow dance. So I really appreciated that scene a lot. And that's because it's the closest you it's the closest you've ever been. And for an extended period of time, like even if right. you are going to kiss somebody, it's going to be quick, you're going to be in, you're going to be out. With a yeah. slow dance, it's like you're going to be there for a solid 3 minutes of like a boys to men song. Yeah. It's a long time. Or I yeah. think my first slow dance was um Savage Garden. Uh Truly Madly Deeply. Truly Madly Deeply. Yep. <laughs> so emo- such an emotional what a classic song yeah a gem of the 90s we've, we've talked briefly about this but kind of to sum it up like if this book were going to be rewritten now how do you think it would be different how do you think it would have to be different or do you think it could kind of go right back out there in the world pretty close to intact and still have a similar response to what it had the first time it came out it won a lot of awards For the record, it won a few awards from the American Library Association and the New York Public Library. So critics liked it. It wasn't just a commercial success. And I'm curious, like, what do you think would have to be different in order for that to happen again? Well, I think personally, I just thinking about the industry, I think it falls in an interesting age range. Like, Mm -hmm. is it middle grade? Is it YA? Because if it's going to be YA, which I... I would place it more in YA, then it, it honestly, it needs to be a lot more gritty. You know, the, the big YA books right now are, they're gritty. It's, I mean, it's some intense stuff. It's murder and sex and drugs and mental illness and things like that. And so, but if it's going to be middle grade, the characters have to be younger. And I, I actually think that they figured this out because the, the series goes on, like it's, it's in print right now, but it's, I think it's like Mia's stepsister and she's younger and it's middle grade. Yeah, which so, I think is an appropriate place for a lot of this content. I agree with right. you. So no, I don't think it can go into I don't think it could go into the world. I don't think it would work now. I think it would have to be different and I think that I wouldn't want it to be grittier. I wouldn't want it to be why I, I, I like it. You know, I like some of its pure-hearted moments, but I don't I don't think it would work in middle grade right now either. Yeah, I agree. I I think at this point in 2000, the industry was still kind of figuring out this whole YA thing, um, which was still a relatively new idea. And I I agree with you that teenagers who have now grown up on the Hunger Games and dystopia probably are not going to be as taken with a book like this as we were. Right. I mean, she's Mia is, yes, she's flawed, but she's pretty innocent. She doesn't drink. She doesn't want to have sex. You know, she's and she's 16. Like, I don't know how much kids would relate to that or relate to it as escapism. Yeah. And she's young high school. I feel like middle grade, you're, you know, in order for it to be aspirational for middle schoolers, I think it's okay for middle schoolers to read about an eighth or a ninth grader. But it's, it's a young age for a teenager. You know, I don't even know that people who are actually freshmen in high school would be as excited to read about a fellow freshman in high school. A lot of the YA that I read now, it's aspirational. So it's kids that are a little yep. older. So I think you're right. I think the age 
the age range is difficult. Would you recommend to your friends who are our age now, would you suggest that they reread this book now? I think if they read it when they were younger and or loved the movie, then I would say yes, because I think it's fun. And I think it does get back into your awkward moments when you were 14 and 15 and 16. And, you're, you know, it makes you reflect on those times in a very cringeworthy way. So I would say, yeah, but if if you're coming to it fresh and you've never seen the movie, you've never read the book, eh. <laughs> Yeah, maybe not. I agree maybe not. You. I agree. Do you feel like there are any key things that went over your head or lessons that you missed when you read it when you were a kid? Definitely. Well, A, I, I mean, I just realized that I've been saying Mia is 16, but she's actually 14, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think she's, she's 14 She's because she's a freshman. She doesn't drive. The kids that drive, I think, are all seniors. So I think I totally, and apparently continue to, I totally missed that when I, because I was so young, Right. she seemed so old, but now I'm old. <laughs> Something that I still think is funny is the Tavern on the Green scene. Mm-hmm. I only ever knew what Tavern on the Green was because of this book. <laughs> so funny. And now and you're a New so Yorker. Awkward. The scene is so awkward. Josh and his friends are so like drunk and annoying and I just have to say that Lars is my MVP. Yeah, Lars is, he might be like the dark horse winner of this whole book. I love him. He's like dependable. He's the best kind of friend a girl could have. But there's definitely some interesting like subcontext. Like he was in the Israeli army. He mm-hmm. likes guns. Oh, but okay. <laughs> I feel like we need more on Lars. Yeah, a whole storyline. And in the movie, obviously, he starts to date the grandmother, which yeah. would never happen in the book. Oh, no. The grandmother has no time for anyone, especially not anybody who works for her. No. Only if they're a king or a prince, obviously. Right. That scene at Tavern on the Green, though, you're right. That was such, and I I think I had more of an appreciation for it now as, as a grown-up, having mm-hmm. had so many times in my life where a reality hasn't matched my expectations. And that was, like, so what the scene was about, where it was like she had imagined it being this romantic like effortless, beautiful, mature situation. And she got there and it was just a bunch of like drunk idiots throwing their dad's money around. And right. I, I think that scene probably did go over my head when I was a teenager because I'd never experienced anything like that before. I agree. And I think that, you know, we didn't, we had obviously when we read it, we had no experience with drinking or anything like that. And maybe parts of it seemed glamorous to us, but now it's like, these are kids. What are they doing being allowed multiple bottles of $250 a bottle champagne? Yeah. And their and their dad's BMWs. Like there's definitely a class thing. Yeah, and if I ever somehow tough. like got myself a tavern on the green and was sitting there and there were a table of kids like going to their cultural diversity dance, <laughs> which is also a thing that I never heard of, throwing like American Express cards in the air, I would be so annoyed with them. Mhm. That'd be so irritating. Has this experience, and I won't be offended either way, has this experience made you like this book more or has it like kind of ruined The Princess Diaries for you? I don't think it ruined it for me. Okay, good. I think, well, to be honest, I did keep reading the series when I was a kid and uh, the series ruined the series for me. The I just... I just, the series went on and on, and there are really only so many books you can read in this voice. I think it's so special as a standalone, and it was special to me, but as the books go on, her voice, she just, it gets annoying, and as you get older, it's not really charming anymore, but I think as a standalone, it didn't ruin it for me. I still prefer the movie. I think I do too, and I hate that. <laughs> we're book we're generally book people, and so for us to say that we like the movie is a departure for sure. <laughs> but I, I think I'm in the same boat as you are. I'm not gonna say that it ruined the book for me to read it again, but I think it made me kind of sad that I didn't understand that I was falling in love with a girl who was like a little bit of a grouch as a you know, as a reader. As a, as a kid reading this book, I really, like, so idolized Mia, and I thought she was so cool and funny, and like you, I thought it was cool that she lived in New York, and it wasn't even the princess thing so much. It just seemed like she was awesome in so many ways, and to read it now and see that she is problematic 
in in my opinion, I felt sad about that. But I don't know that it ruined it. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was funnier on the reread. I liked the perspective that I had having gone through some of these experiences myself. So I think I'm somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Well, we've covered Princess Diaries, but now I'd love if you could share what you're reading now or if there's been a really good book that you've read recently that you would want to recommend to our listeners. Okay, well... I know you're a good one for this. You have, like, all the book recommendations. I try. I read a a lot, which... Which is good. Right now, I've actually been reading more on my phone, and this this is not a a hugely surprising thing to most people, but I am not a digital reader, so this is a new game for me. But I've been reading We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which is like kind of a classic, not a horror story, but very dark and atmospheric. And it is really, really good. And it's short. It's 200-something pages. And it's this, you know, it's everything that, that you want or that I want. It's, uh, it's two creepy sisters and they live in this huge house and the villagers hate them and you should read it. It's great. Good summer read. Good vacation. Book. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, I'm going to give that a try and I'm sure some of our listeners will. I really appreciate you joining us today. It was so fun chatting Princess Diaries with you and you're one of my favorite people in the world to book talk with. So... I'm really glad you were here. Yay. Till next time. Definitely. Bye, Haley. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>